lesson from the Hebrew Bible, we heard this morning of Moses' commission to return to Egypt and lead the people out of bondage. It begins as Moses is settled in Midian with his family and working at his livelihood as a shepherd. He finds himself in the wilderness of Horeb, probably unaware that it is the mountain of God and that his vocation is about to change. He looks up and sees an astonishing thing, a bush afire, but not being burned, not being burned up or consumed. He approaches only to be stopped by a voice that calls his name and tells him he is on holy ground. This is a theophany, an appearance of God. Moses stands in the presence of the Holy One, and it is awesome and dangerous to approach the boundary between God and human beings. God identifies God's self as the personal God of Moses' ancestors and tells the bewildered shepherd that heaven has heard the cries of the Hebrew people in Egypt and wants Moses to deliver them, the, the people of God, out of Egypt. In this lesson, we hear the dialogue between a reluctant leader and our liberating God. God wants to set the captives free and asks Moses to lead them out of slavery. Moses then asks a pivotal question. If I come to the Israelites and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say to them? And God tells Moses, I am who I am. As you may recall from fairy tales, asking someone's name can be a way of gaining some of their power, as was the case in Rumpelstiltskin, who refused to tell the miller's daughter his name. Moses was the first person to ask to know the name of God, and God responded by telling Moses the holy name. Since the ancient Hebrew language did not have any vowels, God's name was transliterated to four consonants, Y-H-W-H, known as the Tetragrammaton because it is four letters, tetra. And because there's no vowel, we're uncertain of the pronunciation, but it is commonly translated as Yahweh. I am who I am is not an easy name, and some have translated it as I will be who I will be. One writer compared it to the answer a parent might get from a teenager when the parent asks where the teen is going and is told, out, or I'm going where I'm going. But if we reflect on the answer, even though it is difficult, and why would we expect the name of the divine to be otherwise, we learn something extraordinary. The most astonishing aspect of the name of God is that it is a verb. I am, I exist, I will be. It is a God who is alive and on the move. Just as you and I are verbs, God is even more so. The lesson is also significant because of the exchange between God and Moses. 
Moses did not believe he was qualified to lead. He was reluctant, but God made it clear that God would be at Moses' side to see that the exodus happened. Moses, like many leaders and like many of us, felt he was unworthy, inadequate to do what God had asked of him. But God assured him and Moses lived into his new vocation. That brings us to our collect for today. In it, we preface our prayer by saying that we realize we have no power in ourselves to help ourselves. And then we ask God to be with us. At times, we may think we're able to handle all the difficulties of life, but the older we get, the more we realize, like Moses, we need God's help. In dealing with the major struggles of life, God's help and God's grace is what enables us to accomplish our goals, to heal, to forgive, to start over at times. And when we ask for God's help, it will come. Our psalm and our lesson from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians both reassure us that God is with us. The psalm reminds us that God is present even in our greatest struggles. And Paul tells us that God is faithful even when we are not and will not let us be tempted beyond our strength. Our gospel lesson, like our first lesson, further explores understanding the divine. And it does so through questions to Jesus. Jesus is teaching, and some of the people ask him questions, which are ones that people still ask today. When we hear of a tragedy, such as the mass shooting last Thursday in Kansas, or one of the many terrorist attacks that come to our news each week, we may wonder why it is that some people are killed and others are not. It's an old question. Were the ones that died somehow more deserving? Or was it just an indiscriminate disaster? Is calamity one part of the wages of sin? If it's just haphazard, then what about me? And what about my loved ones? Is there no purpose then? Is nobody safe? These are some of the questions that were behind the story that people brought to Jesus in today's gospel. His followers were concerned and agitated because some people from Galilee had come to the temple to offer sacrifices. But the Roman ruler, Pontius Pilate, thought they were insurrectionists and so had them killed. But there was another issue involved other than just the slaughter. The people had been killed in such a way that their blood mingled with the blood of the animals they had sacrificed. And so now there was concern about purity and defilement in the temple. Clearly there was culpability, but it belonged to Pilate, to the slaughter and lack of a trial, to the scandal and sacrilege of murder on holy ground. When asked of this event, Jesus responded, do you imagine that because these Galileans suffered this fate, they must have been greater sinners than anyone else in Galilee? I tell you, they were not. And then Jesus brings up another recent incident from the news of the time, a story of undeserved suffering. A tower had fallen, killing 18 people at Siloam in Jerusalem. 
it had been part of a construction project to fortify the city and jesus asked do you think they were worse offenders than all the others living in jerusalem sometimes it seems as if the news is full of event after event of random death and destruction life seems very perilous and precarious how many of us would long to take our concerns right to jesus and ask him to help us make sense of it all in this gospel lesson we have an opportunity to do that if we look closely jesus assures us that those who died were not more deserving of suffering and death than others let us go back to the hebrew bible and see where the idea of deserved suffering begins there we see instances where illness and misfortune are seen as god's punishment for sin but we also see that such an interpretation cannot be applied consistently if we note the idolatrous jezebel dying a horrible and ignominious death we have to acknowledge that the righteous naboth had met an untimely death at her hands while several of the hebrew prophets tried to dissuade people from cause and effect thinking in the area of human suffering it persists today and even some churches will teach and preach that success and wealth are the result of righteousness jesus like prophets before him tried to correct that kind of thinking he stressed there was no reason to believe that those who had died in calamities were any more sinful than anyone else as matthew arnold wrote streams will not curb their pride the just man not to entomb nor lightnings go aside to give his virtues room jesus simply says there's no connection between sinfulness and suffering and his death on the cross illustrates that perfectly but that was not the end of the discussion he had that day he took these examples as an opportunity to move his hearers toward repentance he saw the world as ripe for judgment and sought to turn his hearers toward redirecting their lives there was an urgency in jesus's message he wanted his hearers to move to act to change he wanted them to perceive their lives and purpose in a new light he wanted them to realize that their greatest security was in god and to come to know god in a deep, deeper and new way the poet john keats referred to the world as the veil of soul making and once wrote to his brother saying do you not see how necessary a world of pains and troubles is to school and intelligence and make it a soul jesus is seeking to turn the discussion to one of soul making and he tells a parable that's only recorded in the gospel of luke jesus talks of a fig tree that was in a favorable location but did not produce figs the owner after 3 years of looking for figs and finding none pronounces judgment and says to the gardener cut it down why should it be wasting the soil the judgment while severe seems fair enough but that's not the last word the heart of the parable is in the gardener who says sir let it alone for one more year 
until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. The gardener hopes to save the tree and help it produce by giving it more nourishment to grow. But there is a limit. Even the gardener who cares about the tree will agree to remove it if it doesn't produce. The parable illustrates three things and perhaps more that you will think of. But first, we're all like the fig tree as individuals and as a church. And God's justice is not separated from God's mercy. They are in conversation, just like the gardener and the owner. There's still time for the tree to grow and to produce. Second, as John Keats clearly observed, it sometimes takes a world of pain and troubles to school an intelligence and make it a soul. And sometimes those pains and troubles include things that dig into our comfort zone and even more difficult, things like shovels of manure coming down all around us that we have to endure, but which are ultimately for our own growth. Third, this parable illustrates that when we repent and turn to God and plan to make a fresh start, as we do often in Lent, we need to make a fresh start. Mercy is there, but it requires something of us. And sometimes we need help, help as we ask in prayer. So here's a question. What change in your life would enable you to grow more and be more productive in your life of faith? That's a question both for us as individuals and as a community of faith, and very appropriate in this interim time. Last week I attended clergy conference at St. Francis Retreat House in San Juan Batista, and our speaker asked us similar questions. He, tried, he encouraged us to try to imagine the dream God has for us and for the communities we serve. He asked, what would you need in order to bring your best gifts forward and live into that future? Lent is a time for self-scrutiny, growth, and change. Christianity has often been called a school of love, and many of us have been truant. This is the time in the church to get back on track. We're assured that God is faithful and will help us. So this morning, take some time to think of your productivity as a follower of Christ. We're all called to bear fruits, fruits befitting a God of love. Think how you can foster your own fruitfulness and that of this church and the larger community. Try to develop a sort of spiritual green thumb. And equipped with the urgency of Jesus and trusting in the mercy of God, let's start digging. Amen. Amen.